Well, I thought I uh, better give you a quick update um, since I announced the uh, our, the diagnosis a couple weeks ago of of uh, cancer. I, Tris and I have uh, deeply felt your prayer. Like I can't always say that, but man, the last couple of weeks we've just felt um, your prayer sustaining us. Thank you for the notes and the cards. Um, God has kind of uh, really gone before us and opened uh, opened doors for us in a beautiful and kind of miraculous way. So it was a couple weeks ago on a Friday, I got diagnosis, uh, announced it on a Sunday morning. And during that time, we, we got reconnected or talked to one of our former students. Um, she had had thyroid cancer, and uh, one of another of our former students who's a friend, uh, she put us back in contact with her because she works at MD Anderson in the um, endocrine center, where they address thyroid issues. And uh, she called her best friend, who's also an Aggie, who works just down the hallway in head and neck surgery and works for a surgeon whose specialty is thyroid surgery. And so Sunday night, while the offices of MD Anderson were closed, they were scheduling our appointments. Like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I mean, it's just really remarkable. So by the end of that week, by that Friday, they had put all of our schedules on the calendar for one day. I mean, it was a grueling day, but, but you know, what a miraculous thing that we were able to get in and get all of this taken care of, and they even put us uh, on the calendar for surgery for uh, November 27th. So we're just praising the Lord, and thank you for, uh, for praying for us. Uh, continued prayer would simply be that, that it hasn't spread. I don't think it has. Um, they've looked at lymph nodes, but won't really know until they get in, so pray that the thyroid cancer hasn't spread. And then the, the other thing is, um, there are two vocal cord nerves that run right underneath the thyroid gland. And um, so, uh, you know, I said, um, I kind of need those. Could we <laughs> be like super careful? And, you know, uh, it, it does happen that those can be damaged. It's, it's um, fairly rare. But, you know, I had a really strange moment. You know, I love like data and my background is economics and stuff. And, and uh, he said, well, you know, it's just, it's just 1% that, you know, they have some damage to that vocal cord nerve. And I thought, you know, 1%, that doesn't, it's not a big number. But then I thought, but one in a hundred sounds like a big number. I know, isn't that ridiculous? I, I get it. I understand the math of 1% and one in a hundred, but for some reason it just kind of threw me. So that would be, uh, that would be the ongoing uh, request. So um, November 27th surgery date, probably take a couple weeks off because I just, I just don't think I'm going to want to, you know, scream like I normally do on a Sunday morning for a little while. So, all right. Philippians chapter three is where we're going to be again this morning. Philippians chapter three, verse 10. March 6, 1987, 1987, which happened to be the year that I graduated from Texas A&M, class of 87. That's right. Uh, I'm not going to talk about A&M at all. I'm going to tell you a story about something else. But on March 3rd, March 6, 1987, uh, Eamon Coughlin, who was uh, a runner for Ireland. He's an Irish runner, and he held the, the record in Ireland for the 1500. He was also um, one of the fastest milers in the world at that point in time. He was in, in Indianapolis qualifying for the World Indoor Track Championships. So in his qualifying meet, uh, in his qualifying race, uh, about two and a half laps left in the 1500, he was tripped by a fellow runner, hit the deck, just sprawled out got up and began running. You can YouTube this. It's a great video. He, he just, he ran like crazy, caught up with the leaders, got into third place, which is good enough to qualify. 20 yards left until the finish line. He just checked over his inside shoulder to make sure nobody was coming up on him and no one was there. So he just relaxed a little bit and a runner came up on the outside, passed him and he got fourth. I know it, it was brutal. All of that effort for nothing. Because he took his eye off of the finish line. 
Now, I will admit, I love sports analogies. I love sports. I, like, I love all sports. I even love curling. Every four years. I don't love curling more often than that. But every four years, even curling, I just like competition, right? And, you know, I feel validated because the Apostle Paul used a lot of sports illustrations. In fact, Philippians chapter 3 is an extended sports metaphor. It's actually a race metaphor. And Paul is like this coach who's saying, run to win the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't take your eye off of the prize. The prize is Christ. Don't be distracted. Don't let yourself be tripped up by other runners. Don't don't take a break and go to the concession stand for your cotton candy and Coke. Keep your eye on the prize. The prize is Christ. Church, we live in a world that wants to take our eyes off of Christ. Even with things that that are technically good, But they dampen our passion for Christ. And so one of the themes that Paul hits over and over and over again is keep your eye on the prize. The prize is Christ. So to get us back into this passage that we're in this week, I want to review a little bit of what Jacob covered last week. How do you get into the race in the first place, right? So the, the metaphor actually starts at the beginning of chapter 3, and it works its way through the section we're in today. But, but how do you get into the race itself? Read with me in chapter 3, verse 4, second half of verse 4. Paul says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul says, I was running in the wrong race. My race was a race of of self-righteousness. I had something to prove. And so Paul created uh, this list in his heart and mind of his understanding of the requirements of the law, which he met all of them, which enabled him to, in a sense, make a claim on God. God owes me something because I am, relative to the people around me, at the top of the heap. And he was, based upon his list of rules, his qualifications as he saw it before God, he was at the very top. But Paul says, I understood I was running the wrong race. It's a race of self-justification. Paul was a self-righteous man and as a result a judgmental man and even a hypocritical man because there was darkness in his heart, but he didn't evaluate that. But according to the standards that he had set up, he was at the top. Paul was at the top of the list. And you know, in a sense, every single one of us were born into this world with that same temptation to prove something to God. Sometimes it's out of pride. You know, we actually do. We look around at the people around us and we say, you know, God, uh, it seems like it'd be fair if you graded on a curve and I'm at the right end of that curve. Relative to all of these around me, I'm pretty good. Specifically, when I make up my own set of rules, which I can meet, pride wells up in our heart. Or sometimes it's because of fear, because we begin to understand that God is creator of the universe and the just and righteous judge. How could he actually love us unconditionally? I know he promises that, but certainly there's something that I've got to add to this so that I earn or merit or deserve the love of God. So sometimes it's pride and sometimes it's fear, but either way we're running. Right? We're running our, our own race. And Paul said, I realized at a point in time that I didn't actually measure up. 
Keep your place here in Philippians and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, Paul addresses his own countrymen, the Jews, who, who were just like Paul. Not just individually, but as a nation, they saw themselves as above all others. So Paul writes to them and about them in Romans chapter 10, and he says this, Brethren, that is, uh, Christian believers who are in Rome, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is, my fellow Jewish countrymen, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end or the completion of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying is this. The cross of Jesus Christ crushes our pride. Because no one measures up. Not Paul who was at the top of the heap. Not the Jews who were more righteous than the nations around him. Paul says no one measures up because the standard that God expects is his own righteousness, which is perfection. No one measures up. The cross crushes our pride. But you know what? The cross also comforts all our fear. Because we cannot, in fact, ever measure up, we can now relax and say, God, thank you for giving us Christ. Right? The cross crushes our pride, but it also comforts our fear. We don't have to measure up because Christ measured up. So go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, and notice what Paul says. It says, But whatever things were gained to me, that is, my, my long list that measured my own righteousness, whatever things that I would say, this is what merits something back from God, this is what puts God in my debt. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." The end of verse 5, Paul says, I count all of those things literally as human excrement. Right? Philippians 3 is very graphic. My English translation tames it down because uh, in our country, we don't really want to be offended on a Sunday morning by vocabulary like this. So I won't actually say it the way Paul would say it. Let's just say human excrement. The word in Greek is skubala. It means literally human excrement. He says, my greatest righteousness through which I think God is obligated to me is actually the value of excrement. And so what I had to do is I traded that in for the perfection of Christ. Can you imagine that exchange? God gives you in the place of all of your junk the righteousness of Christ. It's the perfect exchange. It's the perfect deal. It's the perfect bargain. Because we will never measure up, God says, let me give you Christ, because Christ measures up. It's an absolutely and utterly free gift. So don't live in fear any longer if you've been given Jesus Christ. Don't live in pride any longer because you can't measure up. Instead, just embrace the gift of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Right? That's how we get into the race in the first place, is that we're not qualified, but Christ is qualified, and so we run on his record, not on our own. Right? Now, you're in the race. And you know what? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So how do you run it well? 
Let me give you a couple of thoughts. First, you have to run in the right direction. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 again. Paul says, this is the point. This is the prize that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being con- be conformed to his death. Now, when I first uh, started playing hockey, I was a little kid. I was about nine years old. And I remember uh, on one of my first teams, there was a, a kid who was always pointed in the wrong direction. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why, but... Um, you know, he was always turned around, and so our coach would move him from defense to forward and back and forth, trying to figure out where he would do the least damage to our team, because if he was playing forward, inevitably, every game, he took a shot on our goalie. It always happened. Or if he's playing defense, he would be in the wrong place in front of the goalie, the puck would go off of his skate or off of his stick and go in the net. He scored every game, right? He scored every game on us. Right? And, you know, it was just, oh, it was so maddening. It was so frustrating. I remember having that same visceral reaction kind of first time uh, I saw when my son was playing soccer as a little kid, right? <laughs> you ever seen those games? It's just the mob, right? And wherever the ball lands in front of those kids, that they just go forward, right? It doesn't matter. It could be toward the sideline or toward the other goal. I saw as many goals scored on the wrong side of it. I mean, you know, and what are the parents doing on the sideline? Turn around, right? They're yelling and screaming at their kids. Turn around. You're going the wrong way, right? There's always one kid who figures it out, pops out, scores, 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 scores. But most of them, they're completely clueless. Turn around, right? And I just imagine that the saints are in heaven. They're looking down at us and they're going, turn around, right? Turn around. You're going the wrong way. What's the right way? Paul makes it very simple and clear. He says, it's just to know him. It's just to know him. It's just about a deepening relationship of love with him. Now that may not sound super radical to you this morning, but for Paul that was a a complete change of direction. Because all of his interaction with God to this point in time had been entirely about rules. Right? His whole understanding of the nature of how to relate to God was entirely about rules. So in his list, right, his pedigree, he says toward the end, as to the law found blameless. By which Paul didn't mean that he never sinned. What he meant was, when I sinned, I did the right sacrifice. And if I sinned again, I did the right sacrifice. But most of the time, I didn't sin. But if I did, I did the right sacrifice. So he said, I always kept all of the rules. As to the law, I was found blameless. I kept the rules. And I kept the rules better than anyone else has ever kept the rules before. So for Paul, this orientation that he would have an intimate personal relationship and be able to call God Father and Christ the Son his own brother was a radical departure. But he says, here's the one thing to know Christ, to know him. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he put it like this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. That is, my desire, my longing for in life is that there would be nothing between me and God. Right? Because knowledge, biblically speaking, is not merely intellectual. It's not, it's not academic. It's not the accumulation of information. It is relational. It is, it is intimate. Adam knew Eve. There was intimate relationship between them. And when there is deep and intimate relationship between us and Christ, when Christ is the first passion of our lives, we don't actually need rules. 
You tracking with me? When you love Jesus Christ more than you love anything else, you don't actually need lots of rules because the longing of your heart is to know Christ. And so these other things fade. They don't don't grip your heart. If they don't grip your heart, there's no passion for them. You won't pursue them. You don't need rules. The the mature in their love for Jesus don't need rules. Let me illustrate. A lot of you are students out there. I'm I'm guessing, you know, when you were in junior high and high school, uh, even before that, your parents set an alarm. They woke you up in the morning. They said, get dressed for school. Here's your food. Got you out the door. And you probably every morning go, I don't want to go to school. Or I don't want to get up, right? But they were there to enforce the rules, to wake you up, to get you dressed, to put you on the bus or drive you in, right? Boom, boom, boom. And then you got to college. You're like, you don't need anybody setting alarm, right? Because you, you have your eye on the prize. You want to graduate, right? You want to finish that degree. And so you get up in the morning. You dress yourself. You eat. You go to class because you've got your eye on the prize. And I recognize... My metaphor is going to break down a little bit because some of you don't go to class. But I'm saying, ideally, so all right, so let's move to the next stage in life. You're going to get a job, and you're probably going to set your own alarm and get up and not expect your boss to call you and wake you up. And if he does, it's not good, right? You know that. You don't need that because you want the job, and you want the paycheck, and you want to move forward in your career. So somebody doesn't have to keep telling you what to do. If, you're, if your eye is on the prize. Right? Paul says, here's the prize. The prize is Christ. To know him. Second, he says, to know the power of his resurrection. Read with me again verse 10. That I may know him and that I may, may know the power of his resurrection. Uh, I, have, I have lots of goals. I'm a, a goal setter. But, you know, I don't, I don't set goals that I can't accomplish. Right? If, there's a, if there's a goal out there and I know I can't do it, I'm completely unmotivated to pursue it. There has to be, in a sense, this glimmer of hope that I can accomplish it. And there are some things that I recognize in life I can't do. When I was in college, I could, I could, uh, I could slam a basketball. Right? Not like LeBron, not like crazy slam a basketball. Right? I mean, if the barometric pressure was right and you know, everything was good in the world, I could, I could, I could dunk a basketball. You know, if I'm... At altitude in Colorado, my ups are a little better. I could, I could do it, right? It's, I could do it, but now I can't. I cannot, and I never will again. There's not, it's not a goal because you know, the, the springs just don't go like they used to. It's never, they're never going to recover. I can't do it, so I don't pursue it. But there are things that I could do if I just had hope. If I just believed and set my mind to it and pursued it, I could. When I was in school... Uh, I think it was probably grade school, first time my dad told me this story about himself. Uh, maybe, maybe a little later, uh, but he told it to m- me many times, so, you know, uh, just so I would get the point of the story. Um, he was a solid, like, B, C student, right, all the way through school. He just, right there, in the middle of the pack. Probably made a few A's on some tests once in a while, but really, just B, C, right there. All right, so he graduated from uh, high school, and first year of college, he went to a junior college there in Mount Vernon, Washington. And one of his instructors was a gentleman who knew him and two of his buddies from their time in high school. So the instructor went through the whole syllabus, and he said, here's the grading structure, uh, here's how the class will work. Um, any questions? No. Okay, class dismissed, except for you three boys. Come here. All right, so he pulled all three boys up, and he said, you know, you understand the syllabus and how grading structure works, right? Yeah. He said, well, that's the grading structure for everyone but you three. For you three in my class, you will either get an A or you will get an F. 
I'm not going to give you a B or a C or a D. You'll get an A or you'll get an F because I know all of you can get A's. You don't know it, but I know it. And so you're going to get an A or you're going to get an F. And you know what? All three got A's. My dad said he hardly made a B or hardly any C's ever after that because he stepped into every class knowing he could get an A. He could work hard enough and get an A. If he couldn't figure it out, he could hire a tutor. He He could do it. Someone finally believed in him and told him he could do it, and then he did. And you can know Jesus more intimately tomorrow than you do today. If you walk out of here and say, that's right, that's the prize. That's the prize. And there are all kinds of other distractions around me pulling my heart and my attention and my affections off the prize. But I'm, I'm, I'm hitting reset this morning. And the prize is Jesus. And I can do that because Jesus is chasing after me. The power of the Spirit of God is in you. Pulling you, drawing you, chasing you. God wants you to have intimacy with his son Jesus more than you even want it today if you'll just listen and respond to the power of the Spirit inside of you. Mark your spot here in Philippians again and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. Ephesians 1 verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his power, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, I pray that you know what you possess. I pray that you experience what you already possess, which is the power of God's spirit dwelling in you, the same power that actually raised Jesus out of the dead and seated him at the very right hand of the Father. That is the greatest power that exists in the universe to take what is dead and bring it into life. Now, how do you do that? Paul says you do that when you begin to share in his sufferings. That is, you live the life that Christ lived. Turn back again to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the prize, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, if you were with us uh, on the first week, remember we talked about this word fellowship. I gave you a picture of uh, casserole, right, from my growing up days. Uh, that was fellowship to me. You go down into the basement, you eat a nasty casserole, and, you know, everyone suffers together, so to speak, right? That was, like, no, 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 no. That's not what koinonia means. It means participation in, right? And he's praising the Philippians because they're participating in the gospel. Now he says, I want you to participate in the sufferings of Christ, by which he doesn't mean go chase after suffering, find a way for yourself to suffer. He's not promoting martyrdom. He's saying every day that you wake up, realize it's a gift from God, give it back to him. And die to yourself and live to Christ. Say no to yourself and live to Christ. Because when you say no to yourself and you're focused just on Christ, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Whatever he brings, you experience the power of Christ in your life. So my question for you is this. Do your friends know that you belong to Christ? Does your family know that you belong to Christ? Do your coworkers know that you belong to Christ? Is the first thing that they think, Grace Mears, she belongs to Christ. Well, yeah, I know what she does for work, but man, she's a Christian. 
she let me know. Mike and Linda Schaub, they belong to Christ. I know that. I know what they do for work, and I know about their family, but what's most important to them, they've made clear they belong to Christ. They've identified with Christ. That is, they're willing to embrace all of Christ, which is certainly the removal of this debt of sins and life that lasts forever, but it's also suffering and persecution that comes with identifying with Christ. How do we know his power in our daily lives? We identify with him fully, vocally, obviously. Run in the right direction. What's the prize? The prize is Christ. And the way that we experience the power is when we identify fully, which is his life, but also his death and his resurrection and all of his sufferings and all that comes into that. Now, is it worth it? Well, you know, God never challenges, challenges us to do something without also offering a hope, a reward, a promise. And so he does. It's a prize. Uh, it's described here, if we want to read again in verse 10, he says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Or literally, uh, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I, does that, I don't know if that verse gives you pause at all. But it's actually a conditional statement. Right? Read with me again. If you've got New American Standard, it points this out in the margin. He says, literally, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is resurrection conditional for a believer? I will tell you that um, commentators are baffled by this, and they have no idea really what to do with this passage. So let's dig a little deeper, because I think it's kind of important. That word for attain means to arrive at a destination. And the destination, Paul says, is the resurrection, but he uses a word here that's actually used nowhere else. It's the word resurrection plus the prefix out of, which is attached by Paul for the first time ever in the Greek language to emphasize this is something special. He's talking about something special in the resurrection. So let me break this concept of resurrection down for you a little bit. Uh, in the Old Testament, there wasn't a lot written about the afterlife. Right? There's more written about the New Testament. Our eschatology is kind of unpacked a little bit more. So what was uh, taught is that there is a resurrection, just a general resurrection of everyone. Daniel uh, is he's told about this by an angel, actually, in Daniel chapter 12. And the angel said this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What uh, the angel is telling Daniel is, look, everyone will be resurrected. Those who believe in God and those who reject God will all be resurrected. There's a general resurrection. Now you get to the New Testament and we get some more specifics about the resurrection. There is a first resurrection, which isn't just, in a sense, first in time, but really first in priority and value. Revelation chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Right? The first death is physical death. The second death is separation from God. And if you're a part of the first resurrection, this will never touch you. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ experiences the first resurrection. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, this is an absolute guarantee. But in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about a better resurrection. What's he talking about? Well, let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. If you recall, Hebrews 11 is uh, what's sometimes described as uh, faith's hall of fame, right? This is the people who, no matter what the circumstances, they, they trusted in God. Right? So Hebrews chapter 11, 
Verse 32, uh, he's, he's wrapping up after having described uh, different characters, and he says, you know what, let me just give you the laundry list of others as well. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. He says, okay. There were some who through faith put foreign armies to flight. That's David. And people ran. And then others shut the mouths of lions. Daniel's in the lion's den. Mouths of lions are shut. And he says, you know, but then there were others uh, who actually were sawed in two. And they were imprisoned and they were tortured. And they said, no, we're not going to denounce our faith in God in order to be released. Why? He says, so that they would receive a better resurrection. What's he talking about? Turn back to Philippians chapter 3. And remember, we're we're unpacking a sports analogy, right? It's a a sports metaphor. Uh, The Philippians lived in the culture of the Panhellenic Games. That's probably what Paul has in his mind. And uh, the the best race or the most important race were these, these running races, these sprints. And so notice what he says here. Verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained. That is, I haven't seen... Christ face to face. I don't know as I'm fully known yet. I don't have that perfect intimacy yet. I haven't already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why did Christ lay hold of you? So that you would know him and have a relationship in which there's nothing in between you. That's why he laid hold of you, as Paul says. So that's what I'm trying to lay hold of right now. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the upward call? Well, in this, the imagery of the race that Paul's talking about here, when, when the, the runner was victorious, when he crossed the finish line, he would turn and he would look up into the stands and the greatest dignitary who was being honored that day would call him up into the stands so that he could receive his prize. If you were in Rome and the emperor happened to be present, it would be the emperor who would hand you the wreath that was the victor's wreath. That is, that was the upward call for the prize. What is our upward call for the prize? It is resurrection, right? When we see Jesus Christ face to face and he calls us upward to receive the prize. Now, Remember, who was the first person after the resurrection of Jesus Christ who was called up? Stephen, right? Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Now, where is Jesus Christ right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? What's the posture of his body? What's he doing? He's sitting, right? He's sitting because 
He obeyed the Father. He accomplished uh, his work on the cross. He, he died. He paid for sins. He was raised from the dead, demonstrating God accepted that gift or that sacrifice so we could have eternal life. And then Jesus sat down. The writer of Hebrews says he sat down. His work is done. So he sat down. Now, when Stephen was killed, right, they're stoning him. And his life is leaving his body. And he's down on the ground. And he looks up toward the heavens. And he sees the heavens open. And he sees Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? That's right. He's standing because he's calling him up. Right? He's calling him up into the stands to receive his wreath. Say, well done. You won your race. Paul is saying that's the better resurrection. Right? If you believed in Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected. You will live forever. But if you choose to live your life pursuing Christ and Christ first and Christ alone, there's a resurrection that's even better when Jesus stands up and he says, Welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the victor's wreath. Paul says this over and over and over again. He says, Run in such a way that you may win the prize. He says, I buffet my body. I make it my slave. Because when, I, when all is said and done, I don't want to live in such a way that I'm disqualified to receive that reward of the victor when God says to me, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. How do I experience that? When I put Christ first, right? There's just one prize and it's Jesus. It's just Jesus. How does he do that? He says, well, you know what I do? I forget what lies behind, right? Not literally because he can't forget his past, literally, but he says, I know that what's behind doesn't define me. And so I choose to disregard it. He actually does remember it. From time to time, he actually pulls it out. And he says, I want you to know who I, who I am, you know, right? This is my past. I was a, a persecutor and a violent aggressor against the church. I was a blasphemer. I was, I was actually really, really bad. So as to the law, I was found blameless, but the darkness in my heart, it really couldn't have gotten any darker. And the word he uses there for persecutor is the same word he uses for pursuer, literally in Greek, in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I used to be a persecutor of Christ. My life was completely broken, but let me hold it up to you as an example because none of you are too far gone. So I don't worry about that past because Christ dealt with that past. Now, if he can reach into my dark life and rescue me, then he can rescue any of you. So pursue Christ. Right? But I'm not going to worry about it because it doesn't define me. Because now I'm a pursuer of Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for that upward prize of God which he gives us in Christ Jesus. Now, How do we apply this? Let me give you a few thoughts. Uh, First, are you running alone? Uh, In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul switches from first person singular to first person plural. And he says, let us therefore. Let us therefore, as many as are mature, pursue this, this prize, which is Christ. And let us do this together. Are you running alone? It it may be that... um, you don't have companions who run with you in this race. You know, race, you know I've, I've realized now, uh, as I've, I've you know, crested uh, age-wise, that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, when I first started walking with Jesus, it felt like a sprint. But then after a while, I go, oh, that's kind of a long race. And I realized, no, it's, just, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. But it really, if I can make up a new race, it's kind of like a relay marathon. Right? Because what happens is you're going to run for a while and you're going to feel tired and somebody's going to need to carry that baton with you. They're going to have to carry your pack. And so you run together. And then that person who's running with you 
he or she might get tired and you help carry their pack for a while. And you kind of, you're trading that weight back and forth and that's how God has designed it to be. And students, I want to especially exhort you, we just got into November and you may have been um, getting real involved in, in some activities but not found community, find community. Right? We have, we have uh, discipleship groups, small groups who meet here, um, across the street, college ministry, we can get you plugged in. Uh, and you can get plugged in through uh, crew or NAVS or InterVarsity or FCA. There are opportunities. You can get in a, a home group with some adults and families here in, in this church. Uh, you, you have to find a place and find a place quickly and plug into fellowship. You, need, you, will, like, you, may, you, may, you may be just rocking it this semester, and not to be fatalistic, but next, next semester might be hard. <laughs> and you might really get hammered. And you will, if not next semester, go through some seasons in life where you need people to run with you. Are you running alone? Or are you maybe running with people who keep tripping you up? Oh, man, let's get that cotton candy. Let's take a little break on the concession stand. It'll be really good. You know, you can go back to the race whenever. But let's just take a break. And maybe they're tripping you up. Or maybe you're just, you're just discouraged and you need to put your eye back on the prize, Right? Um, there, are, there are all kinds of things for us to pursue in this life. And it's so easy to become distracted by good things. But put Christ first and let the good things line up behind Christ. And this morning what I want to challenge you to do is simply this. Put Christ again first in your life. And believe that you can grow in your intimacy. You can learn to love him more. To see him more clearly as he is. And let your life be transformed by him. Paul says that's it. That's the prize. Just Christ. Now, if I could ask the servers uh, to go back and get us prepared for communion, let me give you one more application. It's this. Uh, Are you in the race? Uh, We're about to take uh, a little piece of bread and a cup, and the bread represents the body of Christ. It is his his obedience to let his body be completely broken uh, for our sins. And then the cup will be... um, represent his, his blood poured out for our, our, our sins to make a payment for those. But have you, ever, have you ever actually just believed in Jesus? Like If you're a believer in Christ and you're, you're not a member of this church, great man, enjoy communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. We don't have to believe everything the same. But um, if you've never actually stopped like chasing and saying, um, God, I'm good enough, <laughs> or stopped running and said, you know, I'm, I'm fearful, I can't, I can't imagine that God would love me just as I am. Then this morning is a moment for you as you take that bread and drink that cup. Realize it's all been done for you. Right? The righteousness of Christ, that's, that's the only standard that actually measures up. And you can receive Jesus and just believe in Jesus. Let me encourage you uh, as you take that bread and drink that cup just to trust in him. Or maybe you're in the race and you're running the race. And what you need this morning is just that reminder that Christ is the prize. And he's the only prize that's worthwhile. And let's just take a moment to say, Jesus, thank you. You're first in my life. Okay, we'll wait till we're all served together, and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. But whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. May I be found in him, not having a meager righteousness of my own, derived from my shaky obedience, but that which is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this represents my willingness to give my all 
for you to have life, the, the suffering of my body. Let's take the bread together. And then Jesus uh, took a cup, which represented his willingness to suffer even to the very point of death, uh, not just physical, but the separation he would experience from the Father so that our sins could be removed. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you that you kept your eye on your prize, which was pleasing your heavenly Father. And really, nothing mattered to you more than his good pleasure for him to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And because you were willing to keep your eye on your prize, we have life that lasts forever. And I pray, Father, that that, um, through the example of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, that all of these lesser loves would just, just fade in our hearts and minds. And he would once again become our prize. Jesus, we proclaim again that you are the prize. We confess that we are easily distracted people. So I pray that you protect us by the power of your spirit this week. Uh, Make us aware and alert to the times we're being pulled off of the track. We're being tripped up and stumbling and put our eyes back on Christ this week. I pray that you would simply renew our passion to know him better. We would would dig deeply into listening to the voice of your spirit through your word. We pour out our heart and truth and honesty and prayer. I pray, Father, that you would draw us through the power of your spirit into Christ. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.